Welcome to Food Psych, a weekly podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 113 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Sonia Renee Taylor, an amazing activist in this body image space that I've been wanting to talk to for a long time. She is the founder and radical executive officer of The Body Is Not an Apology, a digital media and education company that reaches over 1 million people each month in 140 countries with their articles and content focused on the intersection of bodies, personal transformation, and social justice. I talked with Sonia about intersectionality and what that really means to her. We talked about radical body love versus mainstream body positivity and how the movement has been co-opted as it's grown. We also talked about dealing with weight gain and grappling with weight stigma during the intuitive eating process and living in diet culture and learning to navigate this body negative world as anti-diet activists and so much more. It's a really rich, really wonderful episode, and I can't wait to share it with you all in just a moment. First, I want to answer this week's listener question. This comes from a listener who writes, Hi, Christy. How do you know when you're being orthorexic or just genuinely caring for yourself? I'm struggling with anxiety and do feel better when I'm eating healthier foods, but I feel that I slip into orthorexia because of my anxiety and black and white thinking. Yeah, that is such a good question, and I think this trips many people up, especially people who deal with orthorexia, which is defined as the unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. And I use the term healthy in air quotes a lot of the time because that's a loaded term, right? People put a lot on the term healthy and conversely the term unhealthy, right? There's so much moral value that is loaded onto those terms in this culture that we live in, which right now diet culture has taken the form of healthism. And healthism is the idea that you're only valuable or your moral value comes from being healthy, quote unquote, and being healthy is defined in a very narrow way in the society that we're living in right now, which usually ends up meaning some version of, you know, thin, privileged, able to afford things like green juice and smoothie bowls and Instagram about them, right? So oftentimes young as well, tech savvy, educated, white, right? So these these sort of oppressive definitions of health that don't actually encompass true holistic health, right? And we've talked on the podcast before about how the term holistic health, quote unquote, has gotten used to mean just physical health, actually. It was Alan Levinovitz who made that point first in his episode. And we really do live in a time where there is this primacy placed on physical health at the expense of mental and emotional and social health. And so those are the things that I really am aiming to highlight on this podcast is that your mental health, your emotional health, your connections with other people, your ability to bond with people over food are just as important to your health, if not more so. And in fact, we do have a lot of research showing those things are more important than what you eat. Right. And and socioeconomic status, privilege, right, education, race, 
gender, all of those things also factor into people's physical health outcomes. And those are factors that we can't really control, right? Especially like race and gender and things like that. We don't have any control over those. And socioeconomic status is very difficult to disentangle, right? People are often stuck in a cycle of poverty and can't just bootstrap their way out. And so being in a lower socioeconomic status has been shown in many, many, many studies to be associated with worse health outcomes on disease states like diabetes, heart disease, all kinds of chronic health conditions, and also mental health conditions like depression and anxiety and things like that. So, you know, there's lots of factors beyond our control, is my point, that influence our health. And so it's a real fallacy to think that what we eat has that much of an effect on our health at all, right? And I think that's an important point to consider for anyone who struggles with orthorexia and anyone who sort of buys into this cultural emphasis on physical health and on what you eat determining your health, because that's the myth that we're all taught these days. But it just isn't true. What you eat does not have that much impact on your health. As Linda Bacon put it in her episode, it's a very low amount. I think she says in her book, like 25% or less of your physical health has anything to do with behaviors you can control, including food or movement. The rest of it is all of these things outside of your control. And so just putting that in perspective and thinking about the fact that, okay, if you're really thinking about your health and you're doing it from a self-care place, A, you're not going to be able to influence that much just by your food choices. And B, if you do find that certain foods make you feel better, but you're wrestling with yourself and you're, you're restricting yourself and you're falling into that anxiety and black and white thinking that you were talking about, you're actually a lot better off choosing the foods that might be forbidden, quote unquote, or that you might be having anxiety about and be able to be okay with that, right? And be able to have fun and relax and be with your friends and have some relief to that anxiety than you would choosing the foods that you think are quote unquote healthier, but driving yourself mad trying to achieve that, right? Because there's so much more to life than food. And there's so much more to your health than food. And then exercise too, right? There's so much more that goes into your health. It is much more holistic in the true sense of the term. And so we need to think about our mental and emotional and social needs, you know, and meeting those needs because meeting our needs for those things actually leads to better health outcomes overall. So when you find yourself, you know, in a moment of making a food choice and you're starting to get anxious and fall into that black and white thinking, I would think about what other aspects of your health are you ignoring right now? What about your emotional, psychological, social health are you maybe putting on the back burner as you make this decision, right? And say like you're out at a restaurant with friends celebrating something or you're on a great date. Or, you know, you want to have a quick meal to go out and do something else that's really important to you, right? All of those are great reasons to just go with a flow and eat something that's not quote-unquote perfect by orthorexia standards, but that actually fits the bill and helps support your life and helps support these other very important aspects of your health. I mean, another huge thing with regard to your mental health is feeling like you're contributing to the world, like you're doing something work-wise that really matters, right? That you have some sense of purpose, you know, in being here, right? Whatever that is, whatever job or volunteer activity or hobby 
or creative pursuit or whatever you might be taking on. You want to have some fulfillment in that. And so, again, thinking too much about your food choices can really take away from that. And it's so much better to say, like, you know what, this piece of writing that I'm doing or this project that I'm creating is so important to me and it brings me so much fulfillment and joy. I'm just going to eat fast food for lunch because I want to get back to it. Right. Like that actually is a choice that is good for your health in the long run. So thinking about these aspects of health that you might have ignored or not paid enough attention to is super important. And one thing that popped into my head as I was reading your question is I don't know if you've ever seen The Shining. It's like super scary movie from the 70s, very classic. But there's a line in there when Jack Nicholson's character is sort of cracking up from this pressure that he's under. He's like, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And he keeps repeating it. And it's super, super creepy. But that sentiment, right? All work and no play make us dull people, right? Or make us not fulfilled, not satisfied, kind of dampen our spark. You know, that's a super important thing to keep in mind, too, because if you're working hard at all aspects of your life and with orthorexia, it certainly takes the form of working way too hard at food, working way too hard at being, quote unquote, perfect with food and our bodies, that's going to dampen your spark. That's going to take away from your light in other areas of your life, right? And so, you know, if you find yourself getting into that all work and no play mode, and if you have an opportunity for play with your food, right? If it's like, let me have this, you know, cheeseburger or whatever it is, you know, this this fun thing that I'm not usually allowing myself or this dessert or this snack that I've deemed quote unquote off limits or not quote unquote clean enough, right? Because clean eating is so moralistic about food. It, it really does demonize foods that don't fit into this certain paradigm. Think twice about that. Think twice about, am I being all work and no play person right now? You know, is all work and no play making me a dull human? And if so, what can I do to bring some more play into my relationship with food to help brighten up my life, you know, and brighten up my relationship with food, make it less rigid, less restrictive, less imprisoning? and more free, more relaxed, sunnier, right? Brighter. So I hope that helps. I hope that gives you some ideas of, of how to just frame your thinking when you're going about making these choices. And I think trust your intuition too, because in your question, it sounds like you already have some of the answers in the sense that you fall into anxiety and black and white thinking, you know, orthorexia tends to be an issue for you. So I would say, trust that, you know, go with that intuition and let yourself go free a little more, right? You might need to swing the pendulum back the other way for a while. And I call this the honeymoon phase of intuitive eating. Many, many people go through it. And it's a phase where, you know, people who have been very restricted and being very perfectionistic about their food for a long time swing back to this other direction of just like, fuck it all. I'm not going to pay any attention to what quote unquote healthy foods are supposed to be. I'm just going to eat whatever the hell I want. And that's a totally legitimate phase that often is super important to people's trusting that all foods are going to be available and then they have permission to eat whatever they want, whenever they want it. Because as soon as you can really trust and sink into that trust, you will start to feel like your intuition is in charge and you have a better understanding of, okay, what am I doing just because it feels good, because it's genuine self-care? 
and what is the voice of the diet mentality or the eating disorder telling me I should do something for control reasons, not for self-care reasons, actually. So my little pithy mantra that I'm always saying, and I've said probably in many of these questions already, is self-care, not self-control, right? If you're really tuning in to self-care, what feels good to you, not just what feels good to your body, right, but what feels good to your mind, what feels good to your soul, what feels good in terms of connecting with other people, all of those aspects of true holistic health that I was just talking about. If you're really tuning into that in terms of self-care and making your choices from that place, it's a whole different ballgame than tuning into the control voice and the rules in your mind that tell you what you, quote, should be doing. Right. So try to see what flavor those voices have. If you can tune into your thoughts when you're making food choices, just try to see if you can characterize it as like, this seems like 100% uncomplicated self care, or this seems like total self control, or this seems like a hybrid of the two. And maybe it's like 60 40 or 20 80 or whatever, you know, and see how much you can sort of tease apart the control versus the self care aspects of your thinking. So I hope that helps. And if anyone listening wants to ask a question of their own, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. Submit your question there. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And if you want to get a deeper dive into the principles of intuitive eating and have me walk you through all the principles in depth and really troubleshoot the areas people tend to get stuck with intuitive eating, plus answer tons more questions and get access to a library of hundreds of questions that other people have asked and I have answered, head over to christyharrison.com course where you can learn more about my intuitive eating online course and sign up to become part of this great community of people who are on the same journey you are. So come on over to christyharrison.com slash course to learn more and sign up today. And finally, if you like the podcast and you want to help us reach more people who need to hear the health at every size message, head over to iTunes and click subscribe. So even if you listen to the podcast on your computer, for example, subscribing on iTunes helps us come up higher in the ratings so that other people can find us through the health podcast top ratings. And we're, we've been in the top 100 at least for the last six months or so, and we're often in the top 50. And that's a really great way that people find out about the podcast. They're actually discovering us through these charts. In fact, you may have come yourself from the podcast charts. So help other people find us and keep us high up in the charts and moving even higher because I would love to drown out some of the very diety voices that are represented in the health podcast charts. And I think it's super cool that this health at every size message is getting out there and is really in the mix of the top podcasts in the world that talk about health because this is such an alternative paradigm that not enough people really know about. And so I'm really happy to be bringing this message and spreading it far and wide all around the world via iTunes. All right. So without any further ado, let's go talk to Sonia Renee Taylor. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. So I come from a Midwest family, African-American family. Uh, We're from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And food was very much a part of our culture, our way of being in relationship with one another. My mother was a phenomenal cook, but certainly not a healthy cook. <laughs> so <laughs> there is lots of fried, greasy, buttery deliciousness happening in my house. And there wasn't a lot of talk in my family about like healthy food. There was a lot more conversation about sort of managing size, not getting too big. Like where I come from a family of big women. And so 
the work was always about not becoming too big. And so mm-hmm. there was definitely a dieting culture in my family, but it was very crash diety. It was very, oh, now we're doing the cabbage water diet. And then the next week we're having, you know, meatloaf slathered in gravy. <laughs> so there was, there was, I wouldn't say that there was a, an experience of balance. It was very sort of either we are eating whatever we eat, however we eat, or we're dieting. Yeah, very all or nothing. Very all or nothing. Very all or nothing. And did you get on the diet train young? Like, did you start dieting with them? Or was it something like the adults did this dieting thing and you were sort of... No, when my, like when my grandmother, at one period I lived with my grandmother, my mother didn't diet. She was pretty small most of my childhood. She didn't gain weight until she got older, but my grandmother was heavier. And so when she dieted, we dieted because that was what she was mm-hmm. making. So <laughs> if you were on the, you know, she was on the cabbage soup week long diet. The whole house was on the cabbage soup week long diet. And there was also this idea of like wanting to do it with my grandma, you know, like mm-hmm. there was something about it that felt familial and communal about what ultimately was really some disordered eating. Yeah. And how did that affect your relationship with your body? Like I said, I think that because my family, because my family always had big breasts and big thighs and big hips, we were the naturally curvy women. And in my community, that was okay to a point was always kind of the, like, it was okay if you were thick, quote unquote, but you can be too thick. And so as a young person, when I developed early, like I sort of got the Taylor boobs and butt (laughs) around 11 years old. And so I started seeing my relationship with my body as sort of social capital, social capital that I needed to manage, you know, like it got me attention and it got me and my friends rides home from the amusement park, (laughs) you know, like, and so there was this way in which I got a lot of attention because my body was looked very adult, even though I was a teenager. And there was also a very clear need to regulate this commodity. Yeah. Were you conscious of that? Was it sort of a something that you recognized you had the ability to manipulate or was that not until later that you sort of saw that for what it was? No, I think I, I think I recognized it pretty early because I was not a particularly popular kid in elementary and junior high. And then I had a body and then I was a little bit more popular in the world. And I made the connection quickly that there were ways in which my body was a currency, you know? And Mm -hmm. I remember my cousin who's passed away now, he was a year and a half older than me. And we sort of had this very brother sister relationship once said to me, it's not that people like you because of your face. They only like you because of your body. Um, I think I was like 16 when he said that. And it's like, it was one of those things that I think stuck a long time, you know, Mm -hmm. like, Oh, there is a way in which my body is my value. And so because it's my value, like there's, there are some really particular ways it has to be. And I think that that notion definitely later on in my life sort of kept me on yo-yo dieting and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm, For sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any sort of sense that you could step out of line and 
things will fall apart. Is, exactly. It's like fuel for the fire of dieting. Exactly. And were you yo-yo dieting then throughout your teenage years too, or did that not come till later? I would say it probably didn't come until later. Yeah, I don't have a lot of memories in my teenage years of dieting. I was kind of naturally hourglass and and it stayed that way for a while mm-hmm. <laughs> until probably, you know, until until my late teens. And then I remember being more food concerned, but still not dieting. It wasn't probably until like my early 20s when it was like, oh, you can join Weight Watchers or you can join LA Weight Loss or you can join Jenny Craig and actually had a little bit of disposable income Mm -hmm. that I was doing more of that. Yeah. What do you think first made you conscious of your body and wanting to change it? I think that I, I mean, as I got older, I noticed that I was starting to gain weight and there was this sense of you're on the line of being too big. And so you have to monitor that sign, you know? And also right. there was a lot of talk, you know, there's always the conversation of the freshman when you go away to college. And so there's all this kind of don't get too big. And mm-hmm. I ended up going to a school where a lot of the girls were very thin, attractive girls, which made me more hyper aware of my size and juxtaposition to them. So I left the community where where my body was commodity and sort of moved to a space where that was less so. And I was really aware of that. Yeah. What was that like for you? I mean, college in general was just really difficult. I was putting myself through school and also working full time. And also, so I was already not the norm and in terms of the rest of the students that I was going to school with. And then I also physically wasn't the norm. So it was a very isolating time. Yeah, Yeah. it was a very isolating time. Yeah. It does sound isolating and like it it disconnected you from the college experience. Yes. I definitely would say my college experience was one of survival, (laughs) a little Mm. less of the college experience, whatever we romanticize that to be. Right. Yeah. That stereotypical kind of extended adolescence or something. Mm. It sounds like you you didn't get that. No, not so much. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so what do you think that was the catalyst then for starting to take dieting more seriously? Like, okay, I'm going to do this diet or join Weight Watchers or whatever. Yeah, I definitely think there was a lot of pressure, either direct or indirect. I also remember I had a boyfriend at the time um, who I just started, you know, like we were, he was my first serious boyfriend outside of adolescence. Mm -hmm. And we had this period of time where we had a brief breakup and he was dating someone else. And I don't remember the context of the conversation, but I remember him saying that part of his fear of like becoming serious with me is that I would be, I would get fat when I got older. Oh, so again, there were these just sort of moments along the way that solidified that like, I needed to not get any bigger, right? Like you need to stay at this line. And so I took this job right out of college as a wilderness counselor for kids with emotional and behavioral problems, where I literally moved to the woods and lived in self-man-made tents made out of trees and worked with these children. But part of my reasoning when I sort of asked, you know, I'm like, why am I doing this? And it was like, I want to save money. I want to prove I can do something I don't know I can do, like go live in the woods. Mm -hmm. And I want to lose pounds. And Mm -hmm. so 
Towns was definitely part of my reasoning for going to live in the woods. Wow. <laughs> and that was another place where that sort of all or nothing way of being in relationship with my body and weight and food was really normalized. Because when we were at work, which was, you know, like five days a week, 24 hours a day living on campsite, you know, you had this exceptionally active life and there was very, you know, specific amount of calories they gave the kids every day and that's what you ate. And and then on the weekends when you had your time off, it would be like just over the top decadence and ridiculous food and drinking and, you know, and so there was this very sort of swing back and forth that again, just got very normalized. Yeah. It sounds almost like it mimics the restrict binge cycle of dieting, you know, or the, yeah, the sort of like the cheat day concept that's now so popular in diets. Exactly. And that was our weekends. Like our weekends were the cheat weekends. Right. Um, Yeah. So did that sort of cycle then continue or did that drive you further into the obsession with dieting and restricting kind of locking down? It certainly made me, I mean, so I ended up losing pounds or pounds or something like that Mm -hmm. over the course of the year that I worked there. And I remembered being so aware of the difference again in attention Mm. (laughs) between, you know, with the pounds on and without the pounds. But I've never been, I'm not a particularly disciplined human being. So, <laughs> so, so me and diets never really worked out well because I'm not a particularly disciplined human being. So even as I noticed myself gaining the weight back after I left that job, like I, I was aware of it and concerned about it, but not doing anything about it. Or maybe at that point, maybe I did go back to like counting points or something like that. And then I would stop and then I'd do it again. And so, yeah, it was just very much this sort of at least annual cycle of, all right, now I have to try to get back on this weight loss train. Right, right. And yeah, so common, right? Like people, Mm -hmm. because we're not designed to be able to sustain weight loss for any period of time. So it's so normal for your body to just drive you back to what it wanted to be. And then you feel like it's your problem, your fault. Right. And then mm-hmm. like, oh, well, I better do this other diet then, or I better right. do this, I better work harder. <laughs> I've got to work harder. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how insidious that rhetoric is and how, how like, you know, I've heard the argument that if there was another product out there where that had a 95% failure rate. Failure rate, right. <laughs> right. We would not blame ourselves. We would blame the product right. and there would be right. class action lawsuits. lawsuits. And like, <laughs> the thing would be off the market, right? It's like, right, exactly. Yeah. But somehow we just, we come to blame ourselves for diets not working. Yeah. It's really insidious. Yeah. So that was like your early 20s, you said? Yeah. So that, I would say that the sort of being on the diet train stayed until probably until my late twenties. And then uh, I'd say early, actually I'll take that back. Early thirties, mid two thousands is when I think I stopped. I gave Weight Watchers my last $20 and was finished. (laughs) And then I, I still cared. Like I still noticed that I was gaining weight and I still had judgment about it. And, but I wasn't actively, I think I was starting to get some consciousness about just how much a waste of the time this process was. I think I was starting to be like, but you, it never stays off and you're not really 
happy doing this and it isn't working. So why are you still doing this? I think those questions started to form in my early 30s. That's when I found performance poetry. So I ended up in this kind of countercultural world where it was okay to question some of these ideas. And I think that is when I started to divest from this sort of normative idea of like what weight needs to be. That's interesting. Was it, was there a fat acceptance sort of thread in that community or was it just like generally opening up to questioning everything about life? I think it was generally opening up to questioning everything about life. I know that somewhere in there early on, maybe like I came across Marilyn Wan's book, Fat So. And so there were all of a sudden, I was just thinking about these things in a way that I had not thought about them before. And I remember there was a poet and she, I can't remember her name today, but she was fat and she had a beard and she wrote about her body being her politic. And that was the first time I'd ever heard anybody talk about their body and defying sort of the normative standards as a political action. And I had never... I had never considered it up until that point. And I still don't think I was fully ready to let in that idea, but I certainly began to mull it over. It was a a new lens to try on. And I think it took some years for it to kind of fully bloom, but it definitely, I would definitely say that she and that community and the community of poetry at large started planting the seeds of my early ideas of body acceptance. Yeah. It's interesting how long it can take sometimes because I had that experience too. Like I was an editor or I was a journalist as my first career before I went back to school to be a dietitian. And now I do both. But Mm. when I was working as a journalist and in school to become a dietitian, I had a friend of mine who worked at an online magazine was assigned to edit this package on childhood obesity. And he was like, I can't do this. I'm a health at every size advocate. Like it would kill me to deal with this package on childhood obesity, but my boss really wants to do it. So can you edit it for me? Can you be a guest editor and like deal with this package? And I was like, cool, sure. Like I'm going to school for nutrition. So childhood obesity is right up my alley. And, Mm. you know, but he ended up still working on the package and writing some stories for it. And like through conversations with him about health at every size and like the war on childhood obesity and why that might be unfounded, Mm. I did start to open up to like, oh, this, there's this other thing. There's this other paradigm that is health at every size. And that maybe can help explain, you know, some of the stigma that these kids are facing that is causing them so many more health problems than their size. Right. But it didn't quite register until like five years later or something when I started working Mm -hmm. with eating disorders as a dietitian. And then I was like, oh, that's that thing (laughs) Dan was talking about, you know? (laughs) Totally. It's like the pieces are waiting to fall in place, right? Yeah. And it's like, oh, you've got to move this one thing. And when you move that there, it'll position this idea here and then something else will happen. And then all of a sudden it all starts to fall in place. Yeah, it's kind of like a Tetris game it's or something. Totally like, like a setting up these blocks. <laughs> yeah. So funny. Absolutely. That's cool. So yeah, what happened then when you when you started to like explore those ideas or when the seed was planted? Um, I think that I just got I've always been a person who's questioned things and always been kind of live and let live sort of philosophy from mm. very young. And so I think that I started 
to just question why people aren't just allowed to live in their bodies, right? Like, like, why do I, why are we so, why do we care so much mm-hmm. about what's happening with other people's bodies? And I, I think I just also became clear that like there was this way that the world expected us to be in our bodies that, that was keeping people from just being happy mm-hmm. or just celebrating themselves. And so I started sort of like noticing these narratives of shame and noticing the sort of judgments that we were living with. And so there was just this kind of slow brew awakening that was happening for me about one, just making peace with my body, but but larger than that, like starting to question the container under which we've been viewing bodies in general. Mm. And so I didn't know that those were sort of the seeds for my work with the body is not an apology but that definitely was sort of the the early sproutings where these ideas of like, well, what is it that keeps us disconnected from ourselves and disconnected from other people? Mm-hmm. And what keeps us from affirming ourselves and learning to, to like our bodies? And all of those questions were floating around. And then again, in that sort of mental Tetris that happens. I had this selfie in my phone of myself in this black corset getting ready for an event. And I loved the photo. I felt really sexy and powerful in my body. And at the same time was hyper conscious of this counter narrative that was very loud inside of my ear telling me, do not share that photo. Like you're too fat, you're too black, you're too dot, 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 dot. And since that conflict, but it was, that conflict itself was creating something because I, it just, I was not aligned. I was like, but there's part of me loves this photo. So what is this voice telling me not to? And I decided to share the photo after several months of being in that sort of tug of war inside of myself, decided to share the photo and invited other people to share photos where they felt powerful uh, in their bodies. And then the next day, like 20 folks had tagged me in photos of themselves. And it just started feeling very clear to me that like, oh, we think we are not allowed to celebrate our bodies, however they look. You know, and those 20 photos were all different sorts of people in all different sorts of bodies. And it just got clearer to me that maybe we just needed a space where we were allowed to not just like tolerate our bodies, but like actually love them and speak nicely about them and speak nicely to one another about them and like celebrate them exactly as they are. And I had this poem called The Body Is Not an Apology for about eight to 10 months that I had been sharing in the world. And I was like, oh, maybe I should just make a Facebook page where we can do that thing, Mm -hmm. celebrate our bodies and disconnect from this sort of voice of shame that keeps us from celebrating our bodies. And so that's how the Facebook page, The Body is Not an Apology, came about. And it sounds like it really struck a chord with people because everybody has these feelings of like being ashamed about something to do with their bodies and the voice that says, don't share that, you're not good enough, there's something wrong with you. So to like open up a space for that, to give people a place to share and celebrate their bodies. And that was also, wasn't that back in like 2011, I think I read. So like 
kind of before, certainly before this wave of the body positive movement was really happening before body positivity went so mainstream. Yes, definitely. And I think that there was this notion very early on. I mean, for me, one of the things that just got clear is because I was like, everybody has a body. Like, so, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, if there's nothing else, we we all have this thing in common, and I don't know anybody who is 100% happy with it. So what is that about? And I just started noticing the connection between the messages that we give folks about weight and the messages that we give folks about race and the messages that we give folks about disability. And I was like, oh, there's a, there's a narrative that just seems to be sort of cutting through all of this, that no matter what body you're in, it's not a good enough body. And that seems absurd to me since we all have to have a body. We literally <laughs> and, would not be here without right, our bodies. Like, you, can't, you can't do this particular ride without one. Right? <laughs> and, so, right. and so there was this kind of just felt very matter of fact to me by that time that we were having really fractured relationships with our bodies and that it wasn't it wasn't about one particular way our bodies was were mm. that it was about a multitude of ways that our bodies were and that my experience of just posting that selfie and then having other people the next day wake up and post their selfies made it evident that part of tackling whatever those sort of crappy narratives about bodies were was about community. Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, like I did something that felt brave and celebratory and that permissioned other people to be brave and celebratory. And so what if we create a community where we get to be brave and celebratory about our bodies? Yeah. And yeah. And I was, you know, I still remain floored by how, obviously necessary that was and how quickly it started to grow. Right. Yeah. It really caught on because people needed that space. Yeah. And it sounds like it's, it sounds like, you know, that all the ideas about race and disability and size, like that's all, you know, very informed by intersectionality, right? Like, did you, did you have a sense of like intersectional feminism or that sort of thinking before you, you stumbled into that? Or did you just kind of feel your way into it intuitively? I definitely think I felt my way into it, into it. I didn't have the language of intersectionality. And I certainly, I didn't know that I was using the language of feminism. I am, my major in college was sociology with an emphasis in race, class, and gender. So those ideas were already there. The language of our sort of social world changes so rapidly. So by the time Mm. 2011 had come and I finished college in 2000, there was a whole different lexicon but the ideas that we are living at the crossroads of multiple identities, like the idea that that I am black and a woman and queer and neurodivergent, I didn't, you know, like I don't think I had to go to school to know those things because mm-hmm. they just are what's true <laughs> for me and my body, right? And so mm-hmm. there was a way in which that language was always present because that was always present in my life. I grew up living at the intersections of multiple identities and grew up around people living at the intersection of multiple identities. So it always made very clear sense to me that there were a multitude of issues to be talking about. And then later on, the language of intersectionality or intersectional feminism showed up. And I was like, oh, I 
guess that's what we're calling this thing that I, (laughs) that just feels very intrinsic, you know? That's cool. That's really interesting. So did you, with those other identities and the sort of intersecting identities you grew up with, do you feel like you had to make peace with each of those at a certain point? Was there ever shame around them or feelings of not, not enoughness or was that more located in your body size? Oh no, definitely. I think all the multitudes of identities had a good healthy dose of shame. And I would offer that probably I've been most impacted, at least as it relates to shame, with issues related to my racial identity and issues related to to being black in in America and the sort of internalized racism that has existed there and that it that manifests in and community dynamics. And, you know, like I got teased a lot as a kid for being dark skinned and I got teased a lot as a kid for having short hair. And I got, you know, and today I can see all of those things as manifestations of white supremacist notions of beauty. But as a kid, I didn't know that. I just thought I was like the bald headed black girl who wanted to be that. And which was part of what fueled the notions of my body as currency, right? Again, it was like, you have all these other things that no one is ever going to find beautiful. So you better figure out how you can capitalize on this one thing you do have, which is a body that can be sexualized, right? And so those areas of identity always had stigma attached to them and peeling those back In some ways, I would offer that weight has been one of the easier ones. I mean, and I say that relatively, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, one of the easier ones to sort of navigate. Yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, how did you start to unpack and peel back those layers and sort of confront or recognize the internalized racism or white supremacy? It happened, you know, I call myself a very accidental activist and it didn't set out to do any of these things. I I don't know what I I was doing, but I didn't mean to do any of the things I'm doing. Oh, same Um, here. Exactly (laughs) what I feel. But like I said, I was in the poetry community and I think a lot of my inquiries began to happen in my writing. Like I would Mm -hmm. start to be asking myself about these ideas through the vehicle of poetry. And in 2009 or 2010, either 2009 or 2010, there was this big sort of brouhaha that happened uh, in the poetry community. Someone was writing a recap of a national poetry event and I found their Um, recap to be really racially biased. Now, I don't have any recollection of thinking really deeply about race before then, but something about that conversation and something about the way that the person wrote the review just really put a spotlight on not only what I felt was like racial bias in what they were writing, but it also made it very clear to me all of the ways that I had judged things through my own lens of internalized racism. And so I wrote a, an, an essay in response to, to this person's essay and all of a sudden found myself just deeply embroiled in conversations about racial equity and white supremacy and anti-blackness. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I didn't, 
I certainly didn't set out to be the person having those conversations, but those conversations were striking a chord in me. And as they did, they just sort of translated into the way that I was started seeing the world and moving through the world. Mm-hmm. And then I started questioning all of my own ideas about things. So I find that just sort of the thread for me has been that something will happen that catalyzes an idea or catalyzes something that's been stirring inside of me anyway, or been mm-hmm. dormant. And then it becomes the next major piece of something. So I think all of these things were building blocks leading up to the creation of the body is not an apology, but of course I didn't see them at the time, right? I didn't know that I was having these separate conversations and inquiries about all of these different issues about body because I was supposed to go on to create an intersectional digital media platform. <laughs> like, I didn't know that, <laughs> right. but but all of those things were being the foundational building blocks to them. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And and I've read, you know, you've written really beautifully about how like discrimination and injustice plays into or, or is directly the result of our difficulty accepting bodies, right? Like, yeah making peace with with the body is our inability to make peace with the body yes right exactly (laughs) yes thank you (laughs) you had it (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so you know speak a little bit about that like how you started to connect the concept of body acceptance and the body with all these social justice issues so i didn't when i first started the body's not an apology as the facebook page those overlaps were not conscious to me yet. They were there, again, in that sort of Tetris, right? They were there, but they they hadn't all fallen into place. And what I think was happening was that I was doing all of these things separately, right? Like I was doing racial justice work over here, and I had been doing stuff around mental illness over here, and then I'd been doing stuff around HIV over there, and then I'd been doing stuff around reproductive rights and justice and abortion over there. And and doing stuff about disability over there. And then I had this Facebook page that was about like loving the body. And I was also at that time sort of coming into my own identity as queer. So that was happening. Mm-hmm. And as I was, you know, posting things and sharing things that were about the body and about like how we love our bodies or how we practice this idea of, and at the time, I don't think I was using the, I, I had not yet developed the language or was calling it radical self-love yet. I think I was still, I was talking about like living unapologetically and later that language got clearer, but I started to see that it wasn't just our own experiences, our own personal anecdotes that were informing how we saw our bodies or how we saw other people's bodies, but there was an entire larger framework, right? So I was like, well, if we're in this battle at the time, one of the things that was big was Proposition 8 and policing people's right to get married. And I was like, that's who I marry is about the way the desire and love happens in my body. That's about my body. And it's about how my body relates to other people's bodies and whether or not people think that's normal, quote unquote, or not normal. And police violence and the sort of targeting of black bodies by the police is 
about bo- it's about blackness, which is about bodies, right? And, right. You know, like the erasure of disabled folks and just in our world in general is about making some bodies invisible because they make us uncomfortable. And so it just started to be very clear to me that the issues of injustice and inequity that we were seeing in the world were very directly related to how we felt about people's bodies. And I think later on, what also got clear is that even when it isn't necessarily directly related to how we feel about people's bodies, the impact and outcomes of whatever those beliefs and thinkings are happen on the body. So we have to deal with the site of impact, which is the body. And so that just all kind of became clearer as, as I endeavored into the work. And I started seeing the connection between all of these different things that I thought I was doing that felt very different, except that I was like, nope, they're actually all about the body. They're all about, they're all about how we feel about the body. They're all about whose bodies we've decided are normal, whose bodies we think of as the default body when we close our eyes and imagine a body. It's all about whether or not bodies are in alignment with those rules that we prescribed. It's about the body. Right. That is such a beautiful explanation of why body positivity or body acceptance or health at every size or whatever you're going to call it, you know, is a social justice issue and why we can't divorce body size from other forms of other identities and other ways in which people are oppressed or marginalized. And it's absolutely it's so important, I think, at this point in history, especially with what's going on in our government right now, to like recognize that this is the body positive or body acceptance movement can't just stay silent about other issues, right? It's like, it's about lifting up people of size, but also people of color, people, you know, queer folks and trans folks and like people with disabilities and all of that. Like it's, it's not body positivity or body acceptance if we're not making room for all bodies. All all bodies. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Like I was like, if I can't be, positive in my blackness and I can't be positive in my queerness and I can't be positive in my neurodivergence and I can't be, if there are all these other places where I'm not allowed to be positive, it doesn't matter if I'm totally okay being a size that's, you know, and so, and I think it's so important for us to recognize that as long as any of those systems of injustice stand, actually we won't ever achieve collective liberation. We're never, we'll never actually totally be free to live in our bodies as we see fit, as long as there are ways in which some bodies are policed and other bodies are not. Right. That's so well said. It's like, if your body is considered to not measure up in some way, even if you've got it, now it's all okay over here on the body size front, but you're still being told you're not good enough in all these other ways that's going to show up in your relationship with your body and in your relationship with yourself. And it's, it's not all just going to be rosy just because you have your relationship with your size and your, your body shape kind of worked out. Right. Not at all. Because again, this idea that none of us are living a single issue life, right? Right. We live at the intersections of these identities and just, you know, if you get one fix, that's, great, but who wants to be playing oppression whack-a-mole? Like, I don't <laughs> right. want to do that, right? Like, right? I want us to create a world that works for everybody so that 
everybody has the option to pursue their highest selves and their most powerful existence. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm curious to know your kind of feelings about the current body positive movement as as mainstream as it is now and it's sort of one color, one gender, one age group, mm. you know, like yeah. how can we improve that or work with that? So I think it's really important to recognize the ways in which movements become a commodity for the larger economic structure that we live under. And so being able to see how capitalism uses co-ops movements to further its own agenda. And so part of the reason why body positivity, I think, has gone so mainstream is because it's a way to to sell it to us. It's like, oh, we can package that and sell it back to you. And I think as soon as we recognize that the thing we made is now being sold to us, <laughs> it's a great place. Right. It's a great place to be like, hmm, maybe something is off here. One of the things that I that I talk about in my workshops and when I, whenever I'm in space speaking is that like a great indicator of whether or not the work that we're doing is the work of liberation is to look around and see who's not in the room. And if we're looking around the body positivity movement and it is white, cis, able-bodied, hourglass-shaped, size white women, we're not doing the work of freedom. Like we're not, that is a movement that is operating in the same paradigm that has already existed, which means that it's not sustainable because that we've done that paradigm and it hasn't gotten us free. So we know it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So if we're there and we find ourselves replicating that same paradigm, it's a great indicator that we are in a space that isn't actually going to be productive towards the long-term goal of equality and liberation. And it's part of the reason why we moved to this language of radical self-love, because the notion of radical demands that we deal with the intersections of our social, political, and economic lives in relationship to our bodies. And so if we are not, you know, like if the body positivity movement isn't changing the way in which all bodies get to live unencumbered and free, then it is only replicating a system that already exists. It is not radical. And radical requires drastic change. It requires a change that shifts the systems of our society and our world. And it implies that it inherently exists, that it is already it is already there and in us. Mm. And so there is an opportunity for us, for folks who are in the body positivity movement, to continue to, to ask who isn't here. And why aren't they here, right? To ask, the best thing that I did for my own self in expanding this work was that to keep pressing the lens, like to keep pressing the sort of outer boundaries of body positivity. Mm-hmm. Is it okay for me to be positive about my body of pounds? Is it okay to be positive about my body if I'm quadriplegic from an accident? Is it okay for me to be positive about my body as an undocumented person? Is it like to keep asking how far does my positivity stretch? Because mm-hmm. that is that is our personal, that's our personal bias. That's where we get to see, oh, actually, here's where my own prejudice lives. 
Right. And then we get to unpack that for ourselves. And I, I think that we don't collectively ask, particularly the, the movement of body positivity, to do that, that hard pressing inquiry often enough. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that's how you get people who are like, oh, well, body positivity is great for people who are in up to this weight size and this this mm-hmm. range. But, you know, above that, it's just unhealthy. And there's exactly. no, you know, it's like health at every size, but not for all sizes, only for mm-hmm. sizes up to. And it's kind of like what you were saying about growing up, this idea of like, you can't get too big, you know, like right. you, you have, there's this outer limit to like what is acceptable or something. And I yeah. think that's, you know, no matter what the limit is, right? Because like you had this this limit of like, you can't get too big, but acceptance of we're big people. And so up to a point, like we're just going to be big, but not past this point, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, and for people in other families or communities, it's like, oh, well, this is the point. There's always a point. It's a different, exactly. different point for each person, but there is, you know, there are these boundaries on what is supposed to be acceptable. And I mean, I I guess I don't want to say boundaries because I like the word boundaries. I feel like boundaries are so important. Like (laughs) I'm super into boundaries in terms of keeping yourself safe, but like limits or limitations, you know. A ceiling on a ceiling on love. Because that's really what it is, right? And and when you think of it in that sense, you're like, love shouldn't have a ceiling. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like, Like love should be boundless and expansive and all encompassing. And so if my love has a ceiling on my own love and a ceiling on my ability to love other people's bodies, what is that about? And who put that ceiling there? Mm. You know, such an important question. And who's keeping it in place? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that we all kind of have those, those ceilings for ourselves that we hold on to in different ways and Mm -hmm. doing the work of asking yourself, like, why am I not expanding past this point is so helpful. So you're talking about feeling unapologetic in your body and feeling good in your body and love for your body. And I'm curious, this is a question I'm starting to ask people more and more on the podcast because what comes up sometimes in my work with clients who are working on body acceptance and, you know, I'm a intuitive eating coach. So it's more Mm -hmm. kind of, it's like the body image work is part of it, but it's also helping people connect back with their body's cues about eating. But something that I hear a lot is like, well, you know, I've gained weight and now I'm uncomfortable in my body. Like now I physically feel less comfortable and sort of ill at ease in this body, mm-hmm. in this larger body. And as a, a small person myself, having never experienced living in a larger body, I'm kind of like, I don't think it's my story to tell here or my my thing to explain of like what's going on for this person. And I would never want to like take away someone's lived experience of what it's like to be in their body. Cause I don't know, you know, I don't, right. I don't know what it's like to be in anyone else's body, but mine, but there is a sense in which I feel like the idea of being uncomfortable in your body at a larger size, there's a lot of weight stigma and fat phobia wrapped mm-hmm. up in that. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to hear like what your, your response would be to someone who says, I thought I could accept my body, but now it's bigger and I'm just uncomfortable. Well, I think there's a lot of work about unpacking language, right? Like, this, what, mm-hmm. do, what does uncomfortable mean? Because it's a vague word. It doesn't have a material reality. Mm-hmm. And so, like, what does that mean materially? Well, it means that, you know, like, my clothes are tight. So is that because you're unwilling to go up a size in mm-hmm. the clothes that you're wearing, right? Like, and if so, then let's talk about what that is. Does that mean that 
things are harder to do? And if so, what are those things that are harder to do? And is that a function of weight gain or is that a function of wellness in some other way that can be assessed outside of weight? And asking people like, so one of the examples is like, I can't walk up a flight of steps without being tired. Great. Mm -hmm. So if you were to build up your cardiovascular system in such a way that you could totally walk up steps without being tired and you were not to lose one single pound, would you be comfortable in your body? And getting people to like grapple with that. Because often I totally agree that a lot of times uncomfortable in my body means uncomfortable with this new size and all the conditioning that I have received about what it means to be this Mm -hmm. size now. Um, And so divorcing wellness from weight and divorcing the sort of ways in which we have married weight and size to notions of comfort and ease and health and all of these other things. And really asking people to pull those things apart and deal with the material reality of what are things that I do that I want to be able to do or cannot do now? What are ways that I move through the world that are different? And are there ways to navigate those things that are not about the weight? Because at the end of the day, usually it isn't about the weight. There are markers and indicators of wellness and agility and stamina and all of these things that are absolutely independent of weight. Totally. But we have them so tied together that when our body changes, we just naturally assume that all of those things are a function of weight gain and that the only way that they can be navigated is by weight loss. And so asking people to separate those things, like, great, I want you to be able to walk up a flight of steps and feel good too. The question is, if you were to to develop that ability, that stamina, and never lose a pound, would that be fine? Yeah. You know? And then when people get, no, it wouldn't be fine because, or, well, I don't know because, then we know that we're starting to get into the realm where this is much more about the stigma of weight than it is about an actual material discomfort. Yeah, that's really well said. And I think it's so true that people can have different levels of stamina that have nothing to do with their size, but just like, how often do you do this thing, right? Like, how often are you walking up a flight of stairs? You know, maybe this Mm -hmm. is, you're traveling to a place that has a subway with a bunch of stairs and you're not used to walking upstairs, you know, most of the time or stuff like that. So like, you know, getting into the swing of things because the reality is too, that people of all sizes, you know, people in smaller bodies get winded going upstairs sometimes if they're not used to it or if, you know, exactly. right. It's like, or if it's a hot day and they haven't had enough water or whatever, like there's lots of factors even on an individual level day to day that can affect your, how you're feeling in your body. You know? mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I think the, the thing about clothes feeling tight is so interesting too, because I always say it's the clothes job to fit you. It's not your job to fit the clothes. Exactly. <laughs> like it's not, it doesn't matter what size it says, you know? And it's mm-hmm. like, if this, these clothes feel constricting, that's not a fault with your body. That's a fault with the clothes. You know? Right. And I think that's the thing that we do often in the realm of weight is that, that we blame our bodies for the ways in which weight stigma and bias are baked into the entirety of our society, right? Oh, and yes. so they make us, I, there was someone on a, on our thread on the body is not an apology on Facebook the other day saying, you know, well, I'm too fat to do that, 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 that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, can I offer that it's 
unlikely that you're too fact to do dot, 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 and just that dot, dot, dot did not consider your body when it created whatever it was creating. And so that's a function of the weight stigma bias and erasure of the manufacturer and not a failure of your body. Absolutely. Yeah. The world is not designed with body diversity in mind. Not at all. Designed for a very narrow subset of the population. Exactly. Yeah. And our bodies aren't wrong for that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's so important to keep in mind. And it's also hard. I mean, I definitely have worked with people who are like, you know, I've always been fat, but I've been able to fit in, you know, airplane seats or whatever. And then now I'm crossing this threshold. There's the, you know, Mm. the ceiling again, where now I'm Uh not going to be able to. And it's like, I feel, you know, so much empathy for people in that situation too, because it's, really important and helpful to acknowledge like the world is not built for you and it sucks, but it's quite another to like have to experience that firsthand, especially if you're not used to that and then sort of jumping into it. It can feel like a very scary thing to jump into. Yeah, definitely. The awakening, I sort of call it like the process of having the blinds opened and it doesn't really, I've discovered that it doesn't matter which sort of area of oppression or bias that you're awakening to, awakening to it is an exceptionally painful thing because it's awakening to the fact that the world has decided that something about you is not okay. And and it's a very jarring and painful and isolating experience. But I think it's so important for us to keep coming back to that, that it's not about you as an individual that is about a larger system that we've all been conditioned to believe in to varying degrees. And the work of dismantling that system is the work of awakening to it. Right. Yeah. Awakening is a huge part of it because most of us spent a lot of our lives not awake to it. And so then starting to see it as as one big step and then starting to really live it is, is another, I think. Yes, absolutely. I think it's also a dance. It's like you can sort of be awake to these issues and understand that it's a systemic thing and it's not something about you personally failing, but then there's those moments in life that just push your buttons, you know, that just take you back to that place of, oh my God, maybe it's my fault. People say like that they can go years without dieting or thinking about diets and then there's something that happens and it's like, oh, maybe I should just try this thing. You know, maybe I should just go back on this diet. (laughs) Yeah, it's the, you know, like we talk about it, the body is not an apology that like the work is the work of radical self-love is not a destination based work. It's a journey, Mm -hmm. a lifelong journey based work. And it's a lifelong journey based work because we're never living in a world that doesn't still have those biases in it. Right. And so Mm -hmm. we're constantly countering a message that's being given to us every single day. And that's, I mean, it's exhausting. And some days we will feel more fortified to fight those messages than others. You know, yeah. and I, I tell people every day, I said, I run an entire organization focused on radical self-love. It's my whole life and job. And there are days I wake up and I don't love my body. And that too is part of the journey. Totally. That's such a, an important point that like none of us are finished works of art in this movement. Yeah. Like it's, not at all. it's a progressive thing. It's not a not a destination. Yeah. Cause I feel the same. I definitely have days when I wake up and don't love my body or try on an outfit and I'm like, Oh God, no. Mm-hmm, right. but, you know, it's like, that's, that's the reality of living in this world. And then the question is, what do you do with that? Can you, 
accept it and move on and just sort of be like, okay, I'm having a bad day or, you know, I'm having a a tough time with my body right now, but I'm just going to, I'm still going to feed it, right? I'm still going to give it what it needs. I'm still going to move it or not move it as my body tells me it wants. Like, I'm not going to punish it for this icky feeling I'm having about it, which doesn't really come from it in the first place. It comes from our conditioning about it. Exactly. I was going to say that that's the distinction that for me, that helps me navigate it is remembering that what I call sort of the distinction between the inside voice and the outside voice, right? Mm -hmm. The inside voice is my radical self love voice. It's the voice that actually knows my intrinsic wealth and value in the world, in the body that I have right now. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's the outside voice, which is the voice of conditioning and bias and discrimination and body shame and what we call body terrorism at the body is not an apology. And that voice is the voice that's talking loud. And some days that voice is really loud. And then some days I'm able to turn it down. But knowing that it isn't my voice, knowing that that actually, that that thing that is blaring in my ears is an external voice that has been given to me, helps me navigate on those days. And, and I talk about like, if you had a toddler and you were a good parent, <laughs> if you came home and your toddler had, colored on the walls or gotten the flower and now the living room was coated in flour or whatever <laughs> it was that the toddler did that has you frustrated as all get out that particular day, you would still feed the toddler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you would still love the toddler. You would still care for the toddler and clean it, clean the toddler up. And so what if we treated our relationships with our bodies like toddlers that we're learning because we are like growing up into this relationship that is outside of that external voice what if we were as patient and kind and loving and gentle with ourselves as we would be with the toddler we were frustrated with I love that that's such a good metaphor because it really is you know we can have that kind of frustration with our bodies in the throes of body negativity and Yet, there's still a sense in which we have to care for them and be there for them and show them love and compassion in order to move forward with our lives. Mm -hmm. In order to live. Again, like I said, you can't do this particular ride without it. So it makes sense sense to try to make peace. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, there's no way anyone's going to get to be like a disembodied soul floating in a jar somewhere. Like It it doesn't happen. That doesn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) It does not happen. Yeah. So you got to care for the body you have. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, it's so lovely talking with you. And tell us where people can find out more about The Body is Not an Apology and read some of your work. Absolutely. So The Body is Not an Apology runs a daily digital magazine with content from writers and all kinds of bodies all over the world. And you can read our content on a regular basis at www.thebodyisnotanapology.com. You can also follow us on all of the social media platforms at The Body is not an apology. And you can find out more about my individual work at sonya-renee.com. Or you can also follow me on Facebook at Sonya Renee Taylor or on Twitter at Sonya Renee Poet. Awesome. And we'll put links to all of those in the show notes too, so people can find you. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sonya. It's a pleasure talking with you. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you, Christy. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. 
So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guests for being here and to you guys for listening. And we'll be back again next week with another brand new episode. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch. And the best way to do that is via email. So you can go to christyharrison.com slash email to sign up for my VIP list. I'll send you info about new episodes of the podcast as they drop, as well as exclusive sneak previews of new episodes, giveaways and other special deals on the products and services I offer, special tips on how to make peace with food and learn to trust your body, and a whole lot more. Sign up at christyharrison.com slash email. You can also subscribe via iTunes and leave us a nice rating and review, which is a great way to get the word out about the podcast and help other people find these important messages. Just go to iTunes from your computer or your podcast app, type in Food Psych to the search bar, click on the result that comes up under podcasts, and then click on ratings and reviews, and you can leave a rating and review right there. And I really appreciate all the five-star reviews and wonderful ratings that we've gotten because it's helped us climb really high right now in the rankings. And that's really cool because we're competing against some of the weight management and body shaming types of messages that I'm trying to fight with this podcast. So we've really started to beat out a lot of the diety voices, and I'd love to continue climbing higher in the rankings to get this message out even further. So please leave us a nice rating and review. It's so very much appreciated. And thanks to everyone who's left reviews so far. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there?